welcome back to the second episode of Going Nuclear with Justin Hewn and myself, Trevor Hall. Happy you could join us for this is the second installment of this brand new podcast presented by Clear Commodity Network. And with me in this endeavor is my co-pilot, Justin Hewn. Actually, you are the lead pilot in this in this podcast, Justin. I'm just a fly on the wall. Hey, we're, we're both we're both in the cockpit, I suppose, right? And, uh, I suppose so. I, I suppose so. Uh, how you been? I know we're, we're we kind of are trying to cram this in there because I might add you are taking an extended vacation, one well deserved, my friend. Yeah, it's gonna be uh, well, it's gonna be a bit of vacation and a bit of work trip as well. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, it's gonna gonna be gonna be out for a few weeks or most of the month of, of February. So. Looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to it. It's always good to see some uh, some some new scenery and get out of town once in a while just to get perspective. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It is. You have to do it, and all the work when you run your own business and and the type of work that we do, it always follows you no matter what. You can never shake it, especially when you're working in markets. So that's always the case. Uh, you know, we had really great resounding feedback from episode one last month in January when we chatted with Sputz John Champaglia. Uh, so we're going to try to build on that momentum this episode, Justin. Uh, I'm going to take the interview segment this episode. We're going to talk to Garrett Ainsworth of District Metals, specifically about uranium exploration. And then obviously they picked up a big project in Sweden with a lot of pounds of not only uranium, but other battery metals. So I'm going to cover that. Uh, But I would like to maybe start things off here and kind of get your thoughts here just regarding the news out of Sweden. Listen, it was my understanding that there was chatter of the Swedish government lifting this moratorium on uranium mining, maybe later this year, that was the expectation. But once that news hit, I think it was maybe a week and a half before it actually, it seems like it actually happened. What's your insight you have? You know, what are you hearing out of Sweden? Um, honestly, it's been uh, a little bit opaque. So still kind of waiting to hear, uh, you know, that formalized. But certainly that's a, a relatively big shift that's happened politically in the country um, over the past year or so. And, and that's, it's been the same case for nuclear as well. Uh, it was just, I think it was not even three years ago when they shut down their most recent um, reactor closure. And so it's it's very, very good to see them shifting in that direction. Uh, and so, you know, these jurisdiction plays are always really interesting. Um, we tend to not gamble on those sorts of things in, in terms of our, our own investments. But um, obviously a shift towards allowing another area to be mined for uranium is a positive thing for the commodity. And honestly, you know, it takes so long to develop mines and bring mines online, regardless of the jurisdiction. And looking at the looming supply deficit going out into the end of this decade, it's like, yeah, we need that. So um, so it's there's severe, severe uh, supply shortfalls when we when we go out even a few years here. So um, once we get these care and maintenance mines up and running. So that's MacArthur River uh, getting into full, uh, not quite full capacity. They're actually keeping it lowered capacity as well as Cigar Lake, uh, bringing that down, I believe, to 12 million pounds a year. Uh, Langer Heinrich uh, coming online in Namibia um, and any any other care and maintenance mines that are currently in, in the process of coming back online. We need all of that. So it's not like mm. I fear that, that that supply is going to come online and like burst the bubble of this thesis. It's like, no, no, I'm I'm an unabashed advocate for nuclear energy, and we, we absolutely need um, we need more mining. We need more uranium mining going out, especially, you know. So you know, if, if something like if, if Sweden does, in fact, 
um, uh, clear the way for new uranium projects in the country, you know, that that process can get started and perhaps later, later part of the decade or even into the 2030s, there can be some production happening coming from there. And, and that's absolutely needed. So um, I, I welcome the news. You just published your monthly newsletter here, Justin, and it's it, it may say it's a work of art. Every month you publish it, there's just so much information here. Um, but, I, you know, one of the interesting items, and, and I was really looking forward to I, I figured you were going to write about it, and I, there was news out, and I think I shared it on Twitter weeks ago. But Oliver Stone, yes, that Oliver Stone, the filmmaker from films such as Snowden, JFK, uh, Wall Street, that guy, uh, he came out and was uh, pretty outspoken regarding not only nuclear energy, but he actually put some blame on the environmental parties, really uh, slowing down the development of, of nuclear energy. But it doesn't stop there. He was outspoken, but then he took a little I, – I well, I guess I don't know if he was there, but there was a screening of this new film called Nuclear that they uh, shared in Davos, Switzerland, uh, during the World Economic Forum. Uh, I assume you were there front row uh, watching. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, have you been able to watch this, uh, seen a screening or any snippets of it, Justin? I have not. I have not been able to watch it yet. Uh, I've been trying to get my way into some kind of early screening, and I just haven't been able to. Um, so it, it should be released relatively soon here. I think that it first aired last autumn at the um at the venice film festival but yeah from what we're hearing you know they showed they showed the film at davos and standing room only and it it it, uh it supposedly was extremely well received and i think that he has a he has an interesting way uh about himself and about you know with his films of of kind of laying things out in a relatively clear manner uh and i know he obviously probably has a bias for in favor of nuclear and there's certainly some, you know, some small downsides to it that I think we all, you know, know and understand for the most part. But I'm really looking forward to just seeing how he lays this out. And and I don't know what stance he's taking. It, it seems like he's taking a stance of, uh, you know, uh, a, a belief in in the in a concern for the climate, and therefore this is the solution um, going forward. Or whether it's about uh, energy density and you know having a, a robust industry. Uh, robust GDP based on energy efficiency and the efficiency of, of the sources of electricity for any particular grid and how nuclear shines in that realm. Um, I have a feeling it's going to lean more towards the the climate uh, side of things, but I don't really care what his angle is. You know, I, I appreciate that he's that he's you know in favor of more nuclear energy and that he's made this film even without seeing it yet. I just kind of can you know you can you can pick up uh, you know you can smell where the wind is blowing and and, and figure out where where this film is going to take us in terms of um, nuclear sentiment. So it could be a, a relatively big event when this actually hits the big screens. Yeah, uh, looking forward to watching it. You're closer to Hollywood than I am, so I'll count on you to let me know uh, <laughs> let me know after you, how the film is after you get your screening in. Uh, but what was you know what was the reaction here from this Davos screening? Anything come out of it as far as you know, newsworthy discussions. I know Barron's wrote an article uh, following this, which is quite interesting. I, I know sometimes Barron's can be used as a, uh, a counterpoint to uh, when things may start making a turn. I don't think necessarily that's the case right now. But, uh, you know, what was the reaction here from Oliver Stone's screening at Davos? What came about of it? 
You know, I, I don't necessarily know that there's been any direct um, uh, influence from the film on the attendees, let's say. Uh, and I, I, I kind of doubt there's some correlation here, but perhaps there is. Um, in the country of Belgium, which seems to be completely bipolar on their stance on nuclear, I don't know what the heck is going on there. They just literally just closed down last month. They're, uh, I'm going to mispronounce this, but I think it's called pronounced Tihan, Tihange, Tihange, uh, the the Tihange two, I believe it was, uh, that shut down. But literally within a week or two of that closure, they announced ten year life extensions for two other reactors. So it's entirely possible that that longer-term viewpoint had some influence um, coming from this, but it's probably more likely that they just did the math and realized that they couldn't uh, not extend these reactors. So, um, but yeah, it's hard to say. You know, these these sort of things tend to not have immediate impact, but more kind of planting the seed and, and getting because there's a lot of people that are very alarmist about um, environmental issues and about uh, climate-related issues, carbon. Uh, carbon emissions, etc., that have never actually even given nuclear a second thought in terms of um, you know they just they just label it in their minds as unsafe due to whatever the um, you know kind of the, the the greenwashing efforts from the fossil fuel companies, which absolutely are the biggest beneficiaries of nuclear closures. Uh, whether it comes from that, whether it comes from you know, you know, Simpsons and you know, picturing a three-eyed fish swimming in the waters around a nuclear plant, or Homer Simpson, you know, uh, you know, mishandling a, a glowing, you know, you know, fuel pellet, whatever it might be. Uh, but once that, once you can get into the conversation, it's really, really clear to make a obvious case for nuclear and the benefits for the for someone who does sincerely have these concerns. And I'm not trying to like take the other side of this or poke fun or anything like that. But it's like. If you, if you do believe that the world is headed towards catastrophe because of carbon, you can't not consider nuclear. You can't, you can't have those two things. Yeah, it's one or the other. I'm sorry. It's one or the other. So just getting a big name uh, filmmaker uh, airing this at Davos, and this is following the COP conference, by the way, which for the first time ever in 28 years, nuclear had a seat at the table. So these two things happen within a few months of each other. And I think that's a pretty significant shift in, in overall sentiment and, and thinking around uh, nuclear in terms of its role. Uh, there's a couple of news items as well. And we'd love to get, you know, let's look back from the last episode, episode one of Going Nuclear. Give us a sense of things maybe that's happened that you want the listeners to know and potentially even follow. I've got a couple items on the ge- geopolitical space that just kind of hit the wire here in the last couple of days, uh, including Iran, Iran beginning ex- exploitation phase of what might be the biggest uranium mine in the in one of their largest provinces in Iran. I think that's really important to watch. And we know the geopolitical tensions between the U.S. and Iran when it comes to nuclear. So we don't need to visit that much, but there's tension there. But then, and then Iran and Russia seem to have created a pact for me. Or, excuse me, Myanmar and Russia have created a pact to uh, help develop Myanmar's nuclear energy as well in that country. Um, you know, I think countries are able to find their own way in developing their resources to provide energy for their people, but it always comes as some sort of geopolitical risk. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting um, in the, in the world of nuclear, because a lot of times you often, you often see 
um, deals being made for uh, for any particular country with with some entity uh, and that is going to be doing this export build, right? Uh, whether that's the South Koreans, whether it's the Americans through Westinghouse, um, whether it's the French, whether it's the Russians, whether it's the Chinese. And a lot of times, uh, in my opinion, these the decision is not necessarily only based on the financial bottom line, like the cost of the build, uh, necessarily uh, more so than it is the actual political alignment that comes from that uh, that deal happening. So, uh, you know, we saw Westinghouse make some deals in Poland. Um, we've seen uh, China make some deals in Argentina. Um, we've seen Russia make export deals in various parts of the world, especially in the East. Um, South Korea is, has uh, just built the Baraka plant, the four reactor plant in uh, in the UAE, um, and they're signing deals all over the world as well. So, so it's not just necessarily the the most appropriate reactor type or uh, or cost structure necessarily as it is um, geopolitical alignment. So, not surprised to see the Russians working with Iran, um, continue to work with uh, various players in in Southeast Asia, but. Um, you know, the Russians had a huge, a huge export book um, going into into this war. And we've already seen Finland, for example, renege on a, on a contract with Russia to, to build build a reactor there. So we could see more of that. We could see more of that geopolitical bifurcation on multiple fronts. And um, I, I don't know a whole lot about the uh, Iranian deposit. That's something to look to look into further for sure. But yeah, there's there's plenty of development in terms of of prospective uranium mines going out. They just typically it'll take you know ten to fifteen years from discovery to production if they ever get into production. And Russia doesn't have a lot of uranium. They still have a decent amount of warheads that that could be downblended. They have JVs in Kazakhstan. That's their primary source of uranium. They've got a couple of mines in Russia. They've got um, some other interests in uh, in other countries. But um, I wouldn't be surprised to see Russia, to the extent that they will maintain a large presence within the fuel cycle and within nuclear power exports, start to secure more uranium deposits in other parts of the world. Um, Just like the Chinese have. The Chinese don't have a lot of uranium. So what did they do? They bought a ton of uranium of the oversupply in the previous decade. They're sitting on that in strategic inventory. And they've acquired stakes in various companies. They've got a bunch of JVs in Kazakhstan. They own 20% of Fission. They own uh, 25% of uh, Paladin's Langer Heinrich. They obviously bought the Husab mine, got that into development. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see Russia do something similar going forward. Yeah. In, uh, very interesting. All right, Justin, before we uh, let you go and say bon voyage for the next few weeks, and we'll, we'll try to reconvene again in March upon your return, what other news items do we need to be watching out here? I know you know there's company news kind of coming down. We're recording this on, I believe, I think today's the 8th. Cameco's quarterly uh, production numbers are come out tomorrow, the 9th. Uh, that might be important, but you know, what, is there anything specifically within the either uranium mining or nuclear energy sector that really is kind of hinging here that people want to be paying attention to? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, there's there's a number of elements. So one one piece of news that came through about two weeks ago that really kind of set the sector alight for a few days, um, sort of kicked off a, a rally that lasted for maybe a week and a half or so. Um, and I think has longer term implications is just the news from uh, Adam Prom's uh, Q4, um, their, their Q4 roundup, essentially. And they basically are saying that 
they don't believe they're going to hit their 2023 production guidance. And they think that's Mm. also going to impact the reasons for that miss is also probably going to impact 2024 as well. So they had guided for, I believe it was just off the top of my head, 23,000, 23,500 tons, which is roughly, it's, it's about 60 million pounds for the year of 2023. That's on a 100% basis. Um, so that's because Adam problem as well as all their other GV, JVs, all the production coming from the country. Um, and they're saying that they expect that to, to miss by about four to five million pounds for this year. Um, and that's a pretty big deal because this is uh, just last year, not even six months ago, because Adam problem had guided for um, not only 2023's production, but stating that 2024 will be a step up in production to 10% below their subsoil use agreement contracts, which is... So right now, operating at 23,500 tons, that's a 20% 20% below what their subsoil use agreement says that they can produce. And they can actually go mm-hmm. above that in theory. However, they're having problems with their uh, sulfuric acid. Um, they're having problems with piping, uh, some labor problems, etc. I mean, not huge problems, but enough to impact production. And the way that their, their production works with the ISR mining is... You know, you've got to you've got to constantly be drilling out these well fields because you're constantly pulling mineralization out of an ore body. Um, and of course, you know, you always high grade. You always go for the nose, the deposit at the beginning, mm-hmm. and and that dwindles. So you have to continue to almost exponentially drill new well fields to expand to maintain a certain amount of production. And um, and then there's a time lag, right? So there's with with ISR from the moment you drill that first well within a new um, area of an ore body, you're looking at minimum eight to 10 months, if not 12 months before you start to pull anything out of the ground. And then it's really that 12 to 18 month period is where you you rise pretty quickly and then peak out for that well field at about 18 to 24 months as it peaks and, and starts to decline. So they have to constantly, constantly keep keep drilling out. So if there's any impact to to the actual pipe that they need, to their their labor force, or in particular to sulfuric acid, which is the lixiviant that's used within the well field to to uh, interact with the with the mineral, um, that can impact their production. And so they're already kind of guiding for that. That was hmm. that was a decent piece of news. And and you know I don't I don't expect them to completely implode on their production. You know they're still they still have a massive amount of uranium in the ground, and they are the go to reliable producer in the world, and they'll probably remain so for the next decade. But, um, you know, if they miss by four or five million pounds in a year where we're going to have a a really large supply deficit, I mean, we're talking, oh gosh, I mean, on the low side, we're talking 185 million pounds of demand. um, And it's probably going to be more than that. That doesn't include financial or secondary demand. Um, That also doesn't include necessarily any impacts from, from overfeeding. Uh, So, and we're looking at 135, 140 million pounds produced. So We've got, you know, a 40 to 50 million pound deficit with no financial buying. Meanwhile, Sput's already purchased 1.6 million pounds this year. Um, and and we've seen a bit of risk on coming on in, into into the Sprott vehicle. So they've raised cash, I think, in nine out of the last 10 days. Um, I haven't been watching it that closely today, but they're probably in there a little bit today again. Um, the other thing I should mention before we get off here, because I think it's significant, is... Um, for the month of January, the volume of 
of enrichment. So let's say SWU, separative work unit, which is the the unit of measurement for uh, the the energy utilized for enrichment. So when you buy enrichment, you're you're buying SWU, and however mm-hmm. number of SWU you buy, that's that's part of the enrichment process that's determined in these contracts. The amount of SWU that was sold in January is equal to 25% of what was done for the entire year last year. So we've seen oh. a big a big jump in enrichment oh. demand and this is this is not necessarily spot SWU. This is these are term enrichment contracts. Um, hmm. so big volume going into new enrichment contracts. Uh, that's a great sign. That's robust continued demand for enrichment and what that means is these western enrichers um, that only make up about 40% of the global capacity that are selling to 70% of the global demand, they are selling these contracts at much higher tails assays, which means way more uranium demand. Um, and on the high side, I mean, we could be looking at, you know, 210 plus million pounds of demand, um, not even looking at financial players and secondary demand starting, you know, next year into 2025. Huge, huge demand coming from that. One more point I want to make. Uh, having to do with long-term contracting of, of U-308 is that what we're hearing from uh, one of the primary uh, nuclear fuel consultants is that the the pounds under consideration, so let's say the number of pounds that are currently uh, set to be contracted within conversations between utilities and producers that they expect uh, to be signed this year that have been entered into discussion in January is already more than was contracted for the entire year of 2021. Hmm. So we're already north of like 75 million pounds of long-term contracting discussions happening in January of this year. And and we believe that's going to continue to rise. Uh, so I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see long-term contracting get up near and possibly even breach, although I'm not going to go that far, probably get up near replacement rate levels, which would be the annual levels of consumption for nuclear reactors, 175, 185 million pounds, somewhere in that ballpark. So uh, I think we have a a very robust year going forward for long-term contracting. And there's only so many pounds available at these prices, you know, until you kind of get up to that next level. So high 50s, low 60s, that's kind of where the discussions are happening now. And and that has a limited capacity. So um, We'll, we'll work through this level at some point. When we do, it's going to be a nice little jump up to that next level. I think the equities are like that too. Uh, it, it's just going to be an exciting year. I'm really, you know, if anything, just having these conversations with you in a year that really could be pivotal. I, f- I think you called it phase two of the next bull of this current bull market in your newsletter, and to be able to connect with you and and, and publish these ideas and information to the listeners, uh, I, I it's just what a wealth of information. I'm so glad that you and I could are able in a position to do this. So, uh, Justin, uh, thanks so much. Have a safe, safe trip, my friend. I, I appreciate it. Yep. Really, really jealous. Uh, I'm going to take it from here. I'm going to go chat with Garrett Ainsworth about uh, not only uranium exploration, but also what's happening in Sweden, what he's doing there with district metals. It's really an in- interesting pivot for the company. If you call it, maybe he'll agree with me. Maybe you won't, but uh, I, I will miss you, uh, but I'm sure you'll be having fun and we'll touch base with you again in March. Thanks, Trevor. Take care. We'll, we'll talk to you next month. All right, we're going to take a short break and be right back here with my interview with Garrett Ainsworth.
Well, Mr. Garrett Ainsworth, welcome to the uh, second episode of Going Nuclear with uh, myself and uh, Justin Hewn. He's going to be sitting this one out. Obviously, he's on vacation now, but uh, I get the privilege of having a general conversation with you. How are you doing? Uh, doing great, Trevor. Yeah, and, and uh, really happy to talk to you about uranium today. <laughs> well, you know, you and I have had multiple conversations on uh, Mining Stock Daily, obviously, as you are the CEO of District Metals and doing a lot of exploration there in Sweden. I, I've been on uh, a couple of your projects, specifically that flagship Tontebo project, uh, but you as a company are it appears you're going through a little bit of a transition into the uranium space, but I think a lot of people who know you will not be surprised that that's really going to be the focus of this conversation. Maybe people who don't know a lot about your background and what uh, you have been doing in the uranium exploration space uh, might be pleasantly surprised to know that this is really where you've cut your teeth. That's you. You actually took it out of uh, out of my mouth. That 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 is. I so I cut my teeth <laughs> in the Athabasca Basin, uh, starting in, in two thousand and seven, um, uh, working for a company that's uh, called was called Alpha Minerals. It was uh, at that time it was called ESO Uranium. But um, so essentially, I, you know, I took a lead role in in the discovery of the Triple R deposit. Um, I was a VP exploration for Alpha Minerals. I, I found the, you know, went into the historical assessment reports, found some really encouraging looking data, put it all into compilation. Um, we flew an airborne radiometric survey. It lit up, went out, found high grade boulders. It was one of the biggest, you know, high grade uranium boulder field in the Athabasca Basin in the southwest corner of it. Uh, you know, boulders up to 40 percent. It was the most exciting time, uh, you know, I've ever had. And it was, you know, just coming in into the basin. Um and then you followed up with trenching and to, to find out where the bedrock source was, you know, followed up um, with drilling, which we, we made the discovery in late 2012. And it was uh, a, a JV between alpha minerals and, and fission uranium. Uh, you know, it turned out to be such a good asset that fission uranium bought out alpha minerals, 50% ownership in late 2013 for 189 million. Um and uh, that was a it was a really good really good win. Uh, then I went on to Next Gen Energy as VP Exploration and and Development, um, and uh, had a lot of success with the Aero Discovery and uh, a few other discoveries along the Patterson Lake corridor uh, that uh, you know was the host for the Triple R deposit. And uh, yeah, so I mean we we had a lot a lot of success, a lot of fun along there, and you know the Aero deposits in my opinion, one of the best undeveloped conventional uranium deposits on the planet. It's in the basement rock um, and it's, you know, relatively shallow starting at a depth of, you know, 100, 200 meters goes down to about a thousand meters. It is a behemoth and, uh, you know, next gen's doing the right things to, to develop it here. So it's, it's, yeah, I think that could be the next one to, to get into production in, in the Athabasca basin. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't mention also won some really good industry awards at my time at Alpha Minerals and, and also at my time uh, at NextGen as well. So and then I left NextGen in 2018. Um, and that's when I started District Metals. Let me ask you, I want to ask you a philosophical question. You might giggle a little bit, but, you know, do you go out and find uranium or does uranium go find you, Garrett? And what I mean by that is 
how did you, did, you know, when you were, when you were studying, when geology as a student and then professionally, is uranium something that you wanted to pursue or was it one of those things where you landed a job within uranium exploration? You just had to take your academic background and, and get started there. You know, was it something you wanted, I guess, in the first place? That's a good, that's a good question. It's a bit of both, to be honest, because I mean, the timing when I started in 2007, obviously that was, that was almost at the top of the last uranium cycle. And then it was all downhill from there. Uh, but it, but the, the thing that I learned is that if you're onto a good uranium asset, it doesn't matter where you are in the cycle, you'll still see excellent shareholder value, you know, value creation. Um, but one thing that, you know, at the time when I started with ESO uranium, which is alpha minerals, um, you know, one, a big draw is that uh, the value of the rock uh, of, of high grade uranium in the basin, it's, it's pretty much higher than, than almost every other type of mineral deposit, unless, um, you know, there's some, some freak of natures that are quite, quite uh, high grade, but uh, the value of the rock and, and also, you know, the way you explore for it, there's, there's definitely some good vectors to explore for uranium mineralization in the Athabasca Basin. I mean, first off, it's radioactive. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's a, you can walk around and find radioactive boulders, which is something that you cannot do uh, for, for gold or other, um, other, other commodities. Uh, I'm hoping you can give me a little bit of high level uh, technical geological lesson here. Uh, you mentioned, um, you mentioned the radioactivity, obviously of uranium, but I, I guess I'm, I am myself. I'm naive to understand how uranium deposits form. You know, I've got a pretty good understanding of precious metal deposits, you know, base metal deposits, different type of, different type of, of geological, uh, or bodies in those settings. But I tell you what, I am so clueless when it comes to uranium and how these deposits formed, uh, you know, through the earth's crust. I mean, and, and I know this is maybe getting a little bit into the weeds, but I think it's worth discussing because maybe people would find this interesting. Just how exactly does uranium find itself into the earth's crust? What does it take and why is it typically so uh, concentrated in very small areas uh, in the world? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, uranium is highly mobile element. Hmm. So that means it get, it can get leached out of rocks very easily and transported and then when it hurt, it hits uh, certain trap, like structural traps, and and then the chemistry changes. It will precipitate into a mineral, which is quite often uraninite, pitch blend, um, and, and whatnot, and as a primary uranium mineralization. So it, it, that is why you get such high grades because it is so mobile. And I mean, there's all different types of uranium deposits. So I'm not going to go into every single one. But I mean, in the Athabasca Basin, um, there's still an ongoing debate, as with many geological topics, as to where the uranium actually came from. Uh, and, the, you know, Orano, who's previously Arriva, and Cameco have debated this for, for quite some time uh, historically. Hmm. You know, where did the uranium come from? Did it come from the Athabasca sandstone or did it come from the basement rocks? And 
there's strong arguments from scientific data for both. Um, but, uh, you know, I like to actually take a, a bit of an approach. Well, why can't it be both being the source rocks? Um, the idea is that the Athabasca Basin was very thick. Like, um, you know, at the time of mineralization, it would have been like five kilometers thick. And even low levels of uranium in that Athabasca sandstone, like one or two BPM, you take, you take the size of, of the sandstone and the mobilization of uranium and hot fluids circulating through the Athabasca sandstone, very permeable. And then, um, you know, the uranium, where, where these ura uranium pregnant solutions, where they hit uh, quite often graphitic fault zones within the basement that have upwelling um, solutions, uh, they could have uranium in them. Maybe they don't, maybe, maybe they do, but they provide um, the chemistry required to precipitate out the uranium into primary uranium mineralization, typically being uraninite. Um, or it, or in, in a base, so that would be your unconformity deposit where it's right at the contact between the Athabasca Basin and the basement rock. Or um, sometimes the, the thought was that the fluids, the pregnant uranium fluids from the Athabasca Basin would get sucked down into these basement faults. And then that's where they would interact um, within a trap and where there's voids um, they would interact with other fluids that were within the basement rock and then again, drop out uranium. And that, that's the idea of what's happened at, uh, at the aero deposit. So is it fair to say all, all these, these, these jurisdictions of these uranium deposits, let's say Athabasca Basin, but obviously there's also uranium mineralization, you know, in the, in the mountain West to high plains in the United States, uh, Texas has uranium, you know, even across the sea, you know, obviously uh, Kazakhstan's obviously well endowed in uranium deposits. Sweden, as we know, we'll talk about that later. Um, I mean, globally, are you are there similarities with potential thesis of how this uranium was deposited in these different areas of the world? Or is it all kind of you have to, you know, pinpoint which jurisdiction you're, you're 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 looking at and then maybe create a thesis just based on 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 geological events of that area yeah they're not they're not similar across the board and like so let me give you an example in the in the u.s as you point out you know colorado wyoming uh, texas you've got all these sandstone hosted deposits mm -hmm. and they're you know quite often roll front so again very permeable sandstone with um, uranium that's, you know, anomalous, but not, uh, you know, it's not high grade uranium originally. And, and it's because the sandstone was previously, um, an eroded, uh, granitic, uh, intrusion. So that, that's why there's uranium in it. Cause quite often in intrusions, um, especially a two mica intrusion, you'll get elevated uranium. So, and then af after the sandstone has been, uh, placed and you get fluids that are running through it. Again, they, the fluids will pick up the uranium um, and dissolve it into a pregnant solution and move it down gradient. And that's where roll front um, type deposits are, are created uh, right at the, the nose of the, of the roll front where the, 
redox fluids are interacting with the oxidizing fluids and it drops out the uranium. So that's more similar to the, to the theory that's happened in the Athabasca Basin. But then if you look at like a black shale uranium vanadium deposit, such as what we've just applied for in Sweden, that is, there's nothing like that going on at all. So mm-hmm. that's a black shale is, is a type of rock that's been deposited, um, you know, quite, quite, uh, decent depths in in an ocean and so it's very very fine grained but the black shale has a lot of organic material in it so it acts as a sponge and it soaks up the uranium from the from the ocean water Um, same with the vanadium as well and other metals like zinc copper moly and nickel so so that's a you know totally different kind of mineralizing event that that has occurred in a black shale than, than uh, type deposit than compared to, you know, a sandstone roll front or the Athabasca basin. Okay. And my other, uh, hopefully this is my final naive question, but it's really on the basis of radioactivity. Where does it come from? <laughs> uh, yeah. Good. Yeah. Good question. Um, and yeah, I mean, for some people it's really scary, like when Fukushima happened, but right. it's not something to be afraid of because we're constantly getting exposed to radioactivity. So there's three natural elements that are radioactive, uranium, thorium, and potassium. So if you're eating a banana, you are, you are ingesting, you know, a radioactive uh, uh, isotope of the potassium that's in that banana. Obviously it's not at dangerous levels, but um, yeah. And and when you're up in an airplane and you're closer to the sun, you're, you're actually getting quite a bit of exposure to, to radioactivity or when Fukushima happened and there was, there's uh, people going out to beaches with scintillometers and it was showing, you know, in California, it was showing the elevated radioactivity when they went out on the beaches. Yeah. That wasn't from Fukushima. That was because the sands there had thorium in it from naturally eroded um, intrusive. They probably had thorium and uranium. And so they, they, they went out like they were going to the ocean and, and then, you know, the radioactivity went up and they're like, look, this is from, from the nuclear accident. And that's, it was total, um, yeah, totally incorrect and, and just meant for hype. Yeah, very, that's very, sorry. Okay, so I, this, I, I'm glad I get to ask you these questions because these are just, you know, simple questions I really don't have the answer to. And because Justin's not here, uh, I get to ask them. Well, I, I will, maybe I'll also add about uranium. So um, uranium itself isn't, isn't overly radioactive, but it's got an isotope in it that is radioactive. And when that, decays, it breaks down into other isotopes of radioactive material, such as polonium. Uh, there's different thorium type isotopes, strontium, the, the list goes on. Like you could just name a ton of them. And a lot of those um, daughter products is what they're called after the decay of the uranium isotope that's radioactive. Now those are, those can be very radioactive. And so the longer the deposit has been sitting there, Technically, the more radioactive it should be because there'll be more daughter products. I, I want to ask you the art of exploration for uranium deposits. Uh, obviously, I mean, you did a great job really describing the Athabasca Basin, and that's just been an incredible uh, value add and hotbed of activity there in uranium exploration and development. But I want to ask you about the difference between green fields and brownfield exploration in uranium. Is there such a thing? Are there people out there looking for greenfield type uranium deposits or is the sector really stricken to what's already kind of been 
sought out, explored for, and found elements of uranium in such of a brownfields deposit? I would say right now there's a lot more greenfields exploration going on really? given where we are in the cycle. And it's it's actually gotten to um, an almost comical level whereby uh, the Athabasca Basin is getting, you know, more ground is getting, has been staked up recently um, that is completely, um, you know, not, not uh, prospective, mm-hmm. but people are just doing it as a land grab to say, hey, we've got, you know, the most, or, you know, we've got uh, X amount of hectares in the basin. Therefore, you know, you should invest in us. And it's really not about uh, quantity. It's about quality. These deposits are not big um, in, the, in the Athabasca Basin. Uh, they're, they're relatively small and extremely high grade. They're not like a porphyry where you, you, know, you need to stake up massive, um, you know, tracts of land. So, um yeah, there's a lot of ground that's been staked up in the Athabasca Basin that's not good. And uh, and that's, you know, a lot of focus. A lot of money will be spent on on this uh, on these grounds and unfortunately wasted, in, in my opinion, because that's what happened in the last uranium cycle. Way too many uranium companies popped up and they were going out working areas that, um, you know, were not really worth uh, worth the funds or the effort. And, you know, I would argue that that exact same thing is happening in the lithium space right now as we speak. <laughs> the same cycle, different metal. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But I mean, but for argument's sake, you know, what about highly prospective greenfields exploration? Not, you know, you know, the, sh- the shadow of other success. But is there more prospective greenfields exploration in the uranium sector? And I'm, you know, obviously outside of the Athabasca Basin. But are there people, I mean, is there such a thing as greenfields exploration, not just land grabs? Yeah, like like starting out in an area where there's no previously known uranium. Right. Um, well, be, because radioactivity, you know, helps pinpoint people into, uh, into uranium, it, it really is a vector. So, I mean, even, even there's a lot of areas where, um, you know, it, uranium wouldn't previously have been known unless uh, it was picked up from a, a radiometric survey that was done regionally, and, and then it, it, you know, kind of garnered attention. So, yeah, like pure, pure um, greenfields work in in totally undiscovered uh, districts. I don't think I'm not really aware of of that. Okay. Um, there's there's like in the U.S. There's small uranium mines all over the place, uh, like historical and, and brownfield sites. And, and that's a good place to, to start looking in, in the U S um, yeah. because it can lead to something bigger and better. Cause quite often in these brownfield sites, uh, the past operators, you know, they didn't follow the exploration steps that they should have. They didn't start off with uh, the basics and, and then work their way up to drilling. Sometimes in some cases, they just go right into mining of, uh, of you know, a radio- radioactive body that had some uranium mineralization in it. So, what could go wrong? 
so let, I guess this is a good time. To, let's transition into what you're doing in Sweden. And uh, the company announced, District Metals announced a few weeks back that you applied for the exploration licenses of the Viken deposit. Uh, you and I had an interview on Mining Stock Daily about that shortly after the news was announced. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I would revert listeners back to that conversation because it was it was well in depth of the historical resource that you got there. In fact, we had a couple laughs about about just exactly. I think it cost you like seven hundred dollars. Seven thousand. Excuse yeah. me, seven thousand dollars to get this uh, massive uranium, vanadium, cobalt, you know, package that has a historic resource on it. But I, more or less, I want to ask you about what it means for Sweden because. There was a there was a little bit of an asterisk in the news there at that you know obviously there's continued to be this moratorium in Sweden for uranium mining but you had reason to believe that the government of Sweden was looking at potentially lifting that moratorium and at the time you said towards the end of the year so you know November December well I mean I think it was towards the end of the month in January <laughs> Garrett that there was. A little bit of news that the government may be acting much faster than that. Uh, so, give us the give us the general update of the geopolitics of Sweden with this moratorium. Where where where's the government at with lifting this moratorium now? And really, what does it mean in the grand picture of things? Not just in Sweden, but globally, what it means for both uranium mining and nuclear energy. Yeah, no, this is. Uh... This is a great topic. And uh, I mean, it's a game changer for Sweden. And it really all started in September of last year, 2022. The, um, a new government came into Sweden. Uh, previously, it was more of a left center type government. And, and, and the one that came into power in September of last year uh, was center right. And they created a, a coalition in October um, and right off the bat, like right off the bat, they went pro-nuclear. They said the the, the past government said they were going to start phasing out their nuclear power plants and, and, you know, go fully on renewable resources like windmills and solar. But that's not that just doesn't work. Um, so the this new government um, really was was very pro-nuclear, uh, is pro-nuclear. And um, they're going to start they, they said they're going to start turning on previously mothballed nuclear reactors. Currently there's six nuclear reactors operating in Sweden and they supply about 40% of the electricity. Hmm. So that's a, that's a pretty, pretty big, big step. So when vast majority of that would, of the 60% would be hydro, I assume. Correct. Up in the North, up in the North, um, there's a lot of hydro up in Northern Sweden, but down in the South, they burn fuel oil when Hmm. they, when they're running into, you know, shortages, like what has happened. And, and then you throw in the whole aspect, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a fundamental change um, to the nuclear, nuclear fuels market. And, and that has really, I think, been a huge push on Sweden that um, with their being pro-nuclear, well, we can't rely on a dictatorship for the fuel for our nuclear reactors. We need to be able to supply our own domestic supply of nuclear fuel. So, and this is happening in the United States. It's happening, you know, in other democracies as well. And it's a huge shift, but it, it's really being spurred on, um, I think, a lot, a lot faster because of what Russia is doing in Ukraine. 
I was going to ask. So there's there's six nuclear reactors in use right now, and you how many more? You say you said there's some coming off being mothballed. How many are they bringing on? Do you know? Do you know? Those they things? haven't given any details on that, but I I think the two there there are two more that should come on. They're called Ring Hall, uh, one and two, or three and four, and um, and and those ones would be the most likely candidates to, to come back on. But also the Swedish government's been talking to um, to France about building more nuclear reactors. So they've um, they've committed 330 million euros aside to look into building, um, you know, building sites for additional nuclear reactors in Sweden. So it's a full 180 turn, a U-turn um, to go back into nuclear. And it's, uh, you know, again, given, given what's, uh, what, what Russia has done, I think it's, it's here to stay because they can't, they can't rely on Russian natural gas anymore. And, you know, if they're going nuclear, they can't, they can't rely on nuclear fuel from Russia either. What does this mean for other pheno nations? Are they looking at doing the same thing with their proximity to Russia and with their being obviously well endowed in mineralization as well? With Finland? Um, I mean, they, they actually just built uh, and started operating a nuclear power plant. Um, it was a few months ago. So they, and, and again, same position as Sweden, they're, they're, you know, going to be looking for energy uh, security and in doing so that, you know, Finland's got a lot of uranium too. Um, they, they do not have a moratorium uh, going on in, in Finland right now. And yeah, I should probably go, go back to Sweden and the current moratorium. Yeah. Um, but the, the other massive push as to why the Swedish government is now talking about removing the moratorium on uranium is because LCAB, which is a state-owned iron ore miner, up in the north, they announced the largest rare earth discovery uh, in Europe. And so this will be a way for Europe to get rare earths without, again, relying on dictatorships like Russia and, and China. But what they don't tell you is that rare earths also has quite high uranium in it. Mm. And, and so a big, another big push why the Swedish government wants to remove the moratorium on uranium is so that LCAB can get at this rare earth and not be restricted by the uranium moratorium. So when we when we talked last, yeah, I, I was hoping that they might remove the moratorium, you know, maybe November of this year, 2023. But uh, but then, yeah, I think it was a couple of weeks later, news came out on national TV in, in Sweden that Parliament had reached a majority to remove the more or to lift the moratorium on uranium and that they would be formally voting on it in March of 2023. So this formal vote will um, should solidify. And the only reason why they're moving to a vote is because they're confident that it, it will pass. Hmm. Do you think this th- this would happen as quickly if LCAB didn't make that rare earth discovery? Or is the government seeing that this state-owned operation can really be a benefit you know, to their institutions? I think it's happening faster because of LCAB's rare earth discovery. And and I should have mentioned, it's not a new rare earth discovery. LCAB did this beautifully. So they brought, there was a, 
a delegate, like a bunch of European delegates that were up viewing the iron ore operations around Karuna. Karuna. And, and that's where LCAB revealed this rare earth discovery, which is actually a few decades old. But, uh, but you know, when, when you're announcing it to a bunch of European officials, that's going to put additional pressure on Sweden when the EU is saying, hey, you've got those rare earths. Could you, you know, we really need those. Um, and, uh, and so it was a brilliant maneuver by LCAB. And it, it you know, indirectly has put, um, or directly, however you look at it, has put a lot of pressure on the Swedish government to remove the moratorium on, on uranium. Oh, very interesting. How, what are your general thoughts on the geopolitics of the European Union when it comes to resources and energy such as uranium? It, it really kind of feels like a lot of countries are in a pivotal spot to where they know they have the resources. And as the union would love to obviously, as you said, get their hands on those resources for, you know, the entire union. Uh, there is a little bit of skepticism I sense through the specific nations on whether this is in their best interest or not. And I, you know, I know you're not a geopolitical scientist or, uh, you know, and I don't, you're not going to speak for the country or, the union itself, but, you know, working in that country and knowing resource development, what are your thoughts here on the, you know, the support that the union has out of Sweden on the back of uranium and energy development? Yeah. So the, I mean, the theme over the last few decades has been more and more not in my backyard, especially in Europe, but I mean, everywhere as well. Like it's uh, no one wants, uh, you know, any kind of a mine, like, within proximity to them. And, uh, but you know, the big shift is, is Russia invading the Ukraine and everyone going, okay, yeah, now we actually, we need to get our own domestic supply. And cause I've looked at a lot of projects, you know, throughout Europe, um, you know, even in Germany, Czechoslovakia. And, you know, I, I always came up with a, a big flag being permitting is, is pretty high risk in, in some countries like, uh, like Germany and Czech. And, and I think that's going to start, uh, start shifting. I mean, I think Europe is, is really going to start looking to Scandinavia for, for commodities, but they also are going to have a lot of pressure to look domestically as well, or at least to change things domestically. And you're seeing that already because Belgium has announced that uh, now they're they're doing a 180 turn on uranium and and they they want to you know they're extending their nuclear reactors for another couple decades and uh, and they're looking for an agreement with Sweden to supply nuclear fuel and uh, so again that puts more pressure on Sweden to lift the moratorium on on uranium uh, so I think the next uh, the next to fall will be uh, hopefully Germany and Switzerland. Because after Fukushima, I mean, that's when that's when a lot of these European countries said, "Hey, we're um, we're going to phase out nuclear." It was just like a knee jerk reaction, which didn't make sense considering they're they're pushing this uh, you know green energy uh, transition. Mm-hmm. You need some base load power, and that's exactly what uh, what you know nuclear reactors can supply without any uh, you know, carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, looking back at another, I'm curious to understand why, or I mean, not why, and I think I know the why, but in respect to when, and the timing of this, you picking up the Vican deposit, you know, 
would you have, I know you're an explorer at heart, but would you have picked up or applied for these exploration licenses at Vicon if there was still zero talk from the Swedish government about lifting that moratorium? Or did you need some, uh, you know, a, a little bit of an open door there to understand that they are considering lifting this moratorium for you to be confident that getting those claims was the best move for the company? I would say even if there was no talk about lifting the moratorium in Sweden, I still would have made the move to go and pick up the Viken mineral license because it's not uh, very often that you can pick up a tract of land for $7,000 Canadian that covers, um, you know, the world's second largest uranium resource uh, that also, you know, seen over $10 million of drilling and, uh, and two positive PEAs uh, and then, and then add on all the other metal credits like vanadium, um, you know, nickel, that they all fit into the, you know, energy type, type metals. So, the opportunity, like I've always had, as soon as we entered Sweden, I've always been watching and looking for opportunities. That's, you know, that's what we landed on Viken. And uh, yeah, so it's, it's a really good uh, position that we've put ourselves in now. Uh, it's very humble of you to say, Garrett, I think it's a pretty good position. Uh, but my final question is, and, and I, and I hope you can kind of direct your answer towards people listening to this conversation who are maybe new to uh, investing in uranium exploration equities and development equities. What do you need to see out of a uranium project, out of its management, um, you know, all those things listed before you find any red flags? What do you, what do investors need to see to feel confident that their capital is going to be value add? For not only for themselves, but for the company doing the work. What is it about uranium exploration that investors really need to be watching out for? Yeah, I mean, and uh, the things you need to watch out for, I guess, are, are very similar for, for other commodities as well. They're not just, you know, only only uh, slated for, for uranium. But, I mean, if you've got high grades, um, you can get away with low, low tonnage and as long as the, the pounds are there. Um, and, uh, if you've got low grades, then, you know, you need big, big tonnages and you probably want to be close to surface or at surface, more of an open pit type, type scenario. Um, going back to the high grade, low, uh, lower tonnage, um, you know, you can, those could be deeper underground type operations, such as what you see in the Athabasca basin. They could have a lot of technical mining, um, issues like where you have to freeze the rock you can get away with that because the value of the rock is worth so much. Um, and then also, you know, you want to make sure that there's infrastructure nearby um, so that that doesn't have to get built out to the point where it doesn't become economic to mine the, the uranium deposit in, in question. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's mandatory, but it's always good to kind of have a view on, um, uh, like how is the the ore going to get processed? Because you know, especially in the Athabasca Basin, there's a lot of distance between between the deposits and and the process uh, the mineral processing facilities. And uh, 
those processing facilities for uranium, especially for the high grade, they're not cheap to, to build out. Does it feel uh, refreshing to be a uranium baron once again after a few years off, Garrett? I'm absolutely jacked to be <laughs> turning back uh, a focus to uranium. Uh, and and to be honest, the, one of the reasons why I, I, I left the Athabasca Basin as my main focus um, is because I didn't want to just spend my entire career in the Athabasca Basin. Um, you know, I want to learn new things. I, I wanted to explore different areas. And so now the opportunity to explore for uranium, a commodity I know all too well in Sweden, which is a jurisdiction that I've, that I've, you know, come to know very well over the last, uh, what, three years or so is, uh, is a really, you know, good combination for, for myself and for district metals. I, before we let you go, Garrett, I, I do think it's it's worthy to note that uh, you know you and I have been colleagues and friends for a couple of years. I am a shareholder of District Metals, and but by no means is this conversation supposed to be uh, taken as investment advice. And I hope that we had a conversation really about the ethos of your career, but also the art of exploring for these uranium deposits, because there is so much in this space that I just do not know. And I think a lot of other people listening to this uh, can take a lot out, get a lot out of, you know, but when it comes to be, be generally, what is there something I missed in the big picture of uranium exploration and where this sector is heading in the next decade? You know, what is it about uranium? Are we starting to get another, is, are things, are the, is the capital starting to percolate once again in the last year that certainly hadn't since you mentioned 2007. So the, the last uranium cycle, I guess was maybe 2004 to 2008. Um, it uh, obviously was crushed by the great recession, but that uranium cycle and, and the, uh, the lift of the price of uranium to $140 a pound was really based on hopes and dreams that that China was going to build out their nuclear reactor fleet along with India. Hmm. And fast forward, you know, like 15, 15 years, and lo and behold, China has actually built out a lot of their, their nuclear reactors. Uh, I mean, in total, there's 440 reactors in the world, and there's about 52 reactors currently being built with the majority of those in, in China. Um, India has not gone as fast as China, but they, you know, they, they will need to. So, you know, this uranium cycle is really, um, got a much better footing than, than the last one. Um, and, and then obviously, um, it's, uh, it's even stronger with, uh, with everyone understanding that, uh, you know, we, we need energy security in, in all the democratic countries that is not reliant upon a dictatorship. It's uh, so that, you know, all of a sudden means we need to do things more domestically. Garrett, thanks for your time. I think this might be the longest conversation you and I have ever had. <laughs> Recorded. Record We've had longer conversations over meals and uh, drinks, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, thanks so much for sharing some of your time and your insights and best of luck uh, with your uh, endeavors there in Sweden. 
Excellent. Thanks very much, Trevor. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Uh, that's a wrap here on this second episode of Going Nuclear with Justin Hune and Trevor Hall. That's myself. And uh, we'll be back after Justin returns from his, uh, from his much-needed vacation. Hope you all have a great few weeks, and we'll talk to you again next month sometime in late March. Be well, everybody. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Going Nuclear, Justin, or myself, and the Clear Commodity Network team and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.